novel citizen song but it's off um let's see what album reciprocation so if you're looking for that that's what it's called all right i hope you guys are excited for tease show living writers coming up next every experience is a learning experience including lsd there's no such thing as a flashback danny you need to get a job so that you can curb this free-form anxiety of yours. WCBN FM Ann Alba. It's free-form! 88.3 Anya Tosta. got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel and I'm so happy to have you joining us here today. Um, we've got the Michigan Quarterly Review uh, fall issue. What does Europe want now um, here on the table with us and today's guests. Um, thanks so much for coming down to the studio. Um, we have Khaled Matawa, who you will remember from September. Um, and if you didn't catch this show, you can check out the, the website, quick plug, and, and hear Khaled's uh, show then. Uh, Benjamin Payloff joins us. He is the guest editor of issue 584 of MQR. Um, and we have Jeremiah Chamberlain here, contributor, nonfiction piece in this MQR. Um, welcome, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, so is it, um, is it true that this is the first time you're, you're seeing the, the issues? Because, uh, Jeremy, you've got, got one on the table here. Uh, I, I have a, like a print <laughs> copy. Thanks for the PDF. Yeah, I'll guard it with my life. Of course. Yeah. No, it's all, the, 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 the issue is now out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I have seen. I saw it about uh, a few days ago, several days ago, yeah, and yeah. have been doing my best not to. Uh, overexcited. To, yeah, overexcitedly yeah, just yeah, pass yeah, it yeah. out on the street. Well, yeah. why? Why? Because you wanted to wait well, for because, the launch tomorrow yes, at Literati. I, I think, yes, I think that people are. Yes, where yeah. there is going to be a launch tomorrow. Uh, seven p.m. At, at seven p.m. at Literati Bookstore on Washington Street in Ann Arbor, um, and also because I didn't want to preempt the efforts of the office of MQR, uh, and it's really important, in fact, to, to make sure we uh, acknowledge uh, the managing editor, um, uh, Hannah Webster, uh, and uh, the effort of, of everyone in the office there, because they, they are the, they're the ones, of course, who put an issue together. Um, and, uh, and so when they gave me some copies a few days ago, they were specific about not preempting their effort to 
make this public. And this is fall issue 2019. Um, and you say, like, the effort of putting the issue together. When is this starting? Like, when when is this for fall? When did this like start happening yeah well just for this issue particularly is uh we usually uh are always fighting to have a release date so like please please print them quickly and this time around we got them like a week and before or 10 days before the release date our our uh, at least uh, aspirational release dates are january 10th because we can't do january 1 april 1 no joke. July, <laughs> July first and October first. So these these are so this was uh, officially uh, out October first, but it's been it's we've had it in our hands for a little longer, so we had to keep it a, a secret for uh, yeah. And the conversation about it, I'm trying to remember. Uh, somewhere in the Nichols Arcade. Uh, yeah, we were having coffee. Yeah, yeah, we had coffee about this. Uh, it was at least a year ago. I would yeah, think. More, I think more, probably yeah, more. Yeah. Um, and we we knew when we wanted to do the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I remember that conversation with you mm. quite vividly because we were hammering out what yeah. just initially what what we would want an issue like this to be. How did the because this is one of the two mm-hmm. themed issues that are published yeah. uh, within the the four year right? And yeah. how do you decide like why did you decide that this issue? Mm-hmm. What does Europe want now? Like, how did this, because it wasn't, I guess I was starting to think it happened in that coffee. When you were having coffee, you were talking yeah. about ideas, and then you thought, oh, this. No, with MQR, we've been, uh, this is, uh, at least in my uh, sort of editorship, this is our third uh, themed issue. The first one was on caregiving, because it's, it seems like an important issue that no one is talking about. We had uh, Heather McHugh, who's a... Uh, a poet who's been very active with the caregiving since her mother's illness. Uh, so we recruited her as a guest editor for that. And uh, we did an issue on Iran. The idea with Iran was the uh, the 40th anniversary of the revolution. And with Europe, it was a similar anniversary. But it, with Europe, we also... I happened to be in England a few days after the, uh, the Brexit and how London seemed like an abandoned sort of city or everyone was quiet, didn't know what to say. Um, and then I traveled in uh, Italy and uh, with the migrant situation. And so it seemed all of these concerns were, well, Europe is, is uh, and I think the election of Trump and the sort of like the abandonment of Europe and the, the liberal project and the sort of uh, the embrace of uh, dictators or, or all around the world, even within Europe, all of these sort of what is, what is happening to Europe? Europe is such an important center for culture, for ideas, for politics. You know, what is going to happen? And so Ben, you know, uh, came uh, to mind immediately as a poet, knows Europe, uh, translates um you know, uh, so all of these uh, common ends, as soon as I mentioned it, he was uh, up for it. So I'm very glad. Yes, right. I was on board right away. But I, I remember saying uh, almost as a as a reaction um, that we're not doing celebration. No. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, um, my, my professional life has taken me, uh, has sort of bound me to, to Europe in a, in, a, in a very important way for me. And... Um, and uh in in my 
engagement with European culture and European institutions, um, I have become increasingly uh, disturbed by a tendency for self-celebration, especially around round anniversaries, <laughs> such as the anniversary that we have now, 30 years following the fall of the Berlin Wall. Um, I look at the situation in Europe and I don't see a great deal of cause for celebration. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of cause for reflection or mm -hmm. uh, problem solving. Uh, and, um, and already sort of left and right, both politically and, uh, and sort of uh, spatially, I'm seeing a lot of that kind of celebratory material. There are a lot of special issues coming out of various journals that mm -hmm. I've seen in the last year that celebrate Oh, the great thing we accomplished in 1989, mm -hmm. and um, that I, I find that both dull and destructive. <laughs> so we weren't going to do it, especially now that uh, it's sort of you know with Brexit sort of mm. almost making it fall apart. Uh, with uh, some so the, the uh, in Hungary, the Prime Minister uh, Oban saying we want a liberal it, democracy, right. which is uh, Ben mentions, and so there is a. I will, in a way, with the, you know the, Europe, the growth of Europe and uh, the EU and Western democracy, there's also uh, democracy fatigue uh, happening. With if it's happening in Europe itself, it's happening in the United States as well. Then we have uh, we have a problem, and you know with um, with the United States with the the recent presidential elections, it's almost like there is a signal saying, "Ah, oh, well, we, we got to give up on all of that." Uh, I have a favorite dictator. Uh, we sort of the Philippines can go ahead and uh, kill uh, citizens indiscriminately. So it seemed like Europe was the only sort of humanist project going on with all its difficulties. And so, like, well, you know, yes, it, not much to celebrate, but a lot to worry about. Yes, yes. yeah, yeah. And, there, and, and genuine cause for hope yeah. as well, I should yeah. say. I don't want to be a complete downer, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, we are, we're writing this, we, we put this issue together f about Europe um, and about about the idea of Europe, really. Uh, so not all of the contributors are writing from Europe, yeah. uh, but the idea of a of a uh, multinational, uh, liberal, uh, collaborative, cooperative uh, alignment of different interests. They don't have to be the same interests. That's that's what we were looking for: is to see where different writers, different practitioners of literature were able to articulate where the fault lines are between uh, the ideal of integration versus the ideal of national sovereignty, uh, the ideal of traditional culture versus globalized culture, uh, local, international. These things are real problems and real opportunities. And um, looking back on how things may or may not have panned out in the past is actually ultimately just not as interesting and not as relevant to us writing from Michigan or editing this from Michigan uh, in 2019. It's just it's, it, it, the idea was not simply to make a trophy, um, but but instead to advance a conversation and to use that ultimately to reflect on our own uh, struggles with uh, globalization, multinationalism, and and uh, intercultural contact. 
and Jeremy, your piece, or yeah, what were you going to well, say? I was going to build you... off of Ben's point, which I think is quite apt. This um, struck by the this phrase, the idea of Europe, which is mm. I spend most of my um, time in Europe, in Bulgaria, working, and uh, this is a very fraught moment, I think, where Bulgaria as a country, which is uh, not quite east, not quite west, south. It's got Greece to its south, uh, Romania to the north, Turkey to the east, Macedonia now to the to the west. And when you speak to young people there, they'll often tell you that they feel European first and Bulgarian second. And if you look at a different generation that's before the changes, as it's known, 1989 in Bulgaria, um, it's quite reversed. It's very much interested in sort of a nationalistic notion of, of Bulgaria as, as entity. And I find that, you know, that, that is an interesting moment to me when you have one generation who's looking to the West and thinking of themselves in this larger uh, atmosphere of Europe and a more multicultural sense of understanding than this other uh, generation that's looking, and these are broad generalizations I'm obviously making, um, that's looking East and thinking back to the times when they were sort of the little brother of Russia um, and thinking about a loss of those sort of days. So the, a tug of nostalgia on one end of things and uh, sort of hopefulness of the future and the, and the other. But the idea of Europe, I think, is a very striking way to think about it because it is very much a conceptual. And when you say youth, Jeremy, when you're talking to the young people, um, are you, because um, I'm wondering how it's going to be changing after these more recent years. Like, the, I, I imagine the youth that you're, you're speaking of are actually people perhaps in their, their 20s or 30s. Or, or even or, high school students. Okay, because yeah. that, mm-hmm. that's interesting because what is happening now, I feel like, might also impact this feeling of, or will it impact this n- perhaps needing to draw, like, remember what the borders are, because so many of these other countries that were part of this idea of Europe are are making their borders more uh, defined. Fixed, yeah. Well, not, not to generalize, but with, with the, the, the generations, and you had perhaps a Bulgarian or... or, or Hungary, the, the Hungarian uh, prime minister is a known nationalist, at least during the Soviet era. And so there was a, you know, the, the nationalism was uh, to fight against the Soviet Union and to perhaps have a, an age-fulfilled notion of, uh, of the nation. Uh, but then within a decade, uh, the European Union opened up and they all sort of, uh, they all w- w- came in. So I, I'm trying to think of like, where is the... Where's the tension? Is it that the earlier generation never got to see great Bulgaria or great Hungary and it was too soon that they that they were incorporated into the larger Europe, which they had wanted to? And then with younger people, even in England, whether it was Brexit or not, the differences between the generations who voted for Brexit uh, and those who didn't, the young people by, by large percentages uh, uh, in England wanted to be European, or at least stay within the EU, and many so, couldn't believe that the vote went the way that it did. They uh, they didn't imagine that so many people would be coming out in droves. I feel like that's a lot of the young people had said that, like they didn't vote because they didn't think there was a chance of this. Yeah, it wasn't taken seriously. I think by most people, even yeah, by people Cameron, wanted to even by David Cameron, it was he thought it was a joke. He was oh yes, yeah, so absolutely, yeah, yeah, and there's and and of course uh, the 
the fantasy of of national sovereignty and you know mm-hmm. great Bulgaria, as mm-hmm. you just said, you could say great Poland or great mm-hmm. Hungary. This, of course, it's a great fantasy. Britain. Great Britain, mm-hmm. for yeah. that matter. Yeah. Um, it's a fantasy. Uh, the uh, the great. I use that word very loosely, uh, empires of the past dissolved a long time ago. Uh, And the reason we have had such stability, uh, growth, and uh, relative peace in Europe since the the end of the Second World War is because of international alliances and cooperative arrangements. There's really no – there's nothing to dispute that. Um, And – uh, th- what we are seeing now in um, in the behavior of uh, the European voting publics is very much a generational split between younger voters and uh, younger people who grew up natively in an environment of internationalism, mm-hmm. and they don't question it. What they don't understand is why you would take it away from them, whereas the older generations see it as something they were trying out and then maybe decided it wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back today on Living Writers. Guest editor of MQR, uh, the fall 2019 58 four issue. What does Europe want now? Um, Benjamin Payloff. We've got the editor in chief, Khaled Matawa here and Jeremiah Chamberlain, a contri- contributor for this issue. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Gina Brandolino behind the glass. We'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, we've got the Michigan Quarterly Review in-house fall 2019's What Does Europe Want Now? Um, And we've got Benjamin Payloff, Khaled Matawa, and Jeremiah Chamberlain here in the studio. Um, ben, thanks for picking the songs for today's program. Sure. Can you, what, what was, tell us about the one we just heard. Uh, so that's a, uh, a band I enjoy very much called Motorama. They're from Rostov in uh, southern Russia. 
playing music that sounds very much like uh, late Joy Division, early New Order uh, in English. Um, I liked and, it immediately. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, well, I, 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 it's, a, it's an album called Alps from a few years ago. I think it's an excellent album overall. In fact, the entire album is really great. Um, it, I, I, when I was asked to uh, f- figure out a few songs to play for, um, for this, uh, for this uh, conversation, I was thinking about things like what we have on the cover of this issue, which is, uh, which is artwork, uh, it's book art. Uh, by an artist named Joanna Consejo, uh, a Polish graphic artist with a Spanish last name living in Paris. Is a, this is the idea, right? Is this, is, this is not an ideal. This is the way people actually live, the way they actually work. Um, what is an ideal, and to my mind a rather dark one, is the nostalgia for everyone being where they're supposed to be. Uh, and, you know, ma- whether you're making America great again or Hungary great again, I need to. I need specifics. I'm a very um, literalist person when it comes to rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I, I need, you need to back it up. I need to give me names, give me dates, because the reality that I see is a band in southern Russia that is touring Europe singing in English in a style of a British band from Manchester. Who they loved. Yes, exactly. Right, and we're inspired by exactly, and yeah, all part of the idea, right? The European idea, as we were talking about, exactly, and the global, idea. and the global, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah, we're exactly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be in yeah. Europe. It could be in any of the continents mm-hmm. where you begin and where you end up, or as you, in many places for our lives now, yeah. right? It's not, um, yeah. Yes, no. It's in fact. It, it, Idea is a perfectly suitable word for it, but another word for it, and one that often gets used in academia, is project. Yes. It's not something that we have. It's something that we do or we quit. It's a choice. Um, uh, whereas the rhetoric that is highly nostalgic, hearkening back to some ancient greatness in one's national culture... Uh, that's not a project. That's something that they simply decided must exist on some spirit level. It's, or it's a story. Right. It's a right. story you like. It's yeah. It's a it's a fairy tale actually. Uh, and um, uh, what I I think that we've done with this issue quite effectively with these these wonderful contributions uh, is to alert ourselves again to the fact that this is a project and the project has failures it has triumphs it has um side projects even right. uh, uh one of my favorite pieces actually in the whole issue is the very last one is uh, a dispatch by a bulgarian intellectual named Georgi markov uh commenting on uh britain's accession to the precursor of the european union and he wrote this short essay against the very notion of patriotism because he said that this patriotism is ultimately the poison that com- that completely obliterates the project, right? You're essentially saying, I'm more willing to live in my indulgence of a fantasy than to face up to the creation of something that requires my labor and my investment. This reminds me of like our the flag pin in this country, where if you're not wearing a flag pin somewhere on your outfit, somehow your patriotism is not 
up to snuff. I hope not in Ann Arbor because I've I've never worn one. Yeah. Everyone's hiding their flag pins now yeah, here yeah, in the studio. Yeah, no, yeah. but um, or yeah, I, or I shouldn't say that. I think maybe uh, people, perhaps politicians, <laughs> uh, or so. It seems to be almost like a, a requirement. Sure. Um, and I I don't think I'm saying anything particularly outrageous or. Um, or unusual, especially in this kind of gathering, when I say that to, to me, patriotism is working in a public school. Patriotism is mm-hmm. uh, is uh, helping your neighbor uh, clean up a, a, a yard or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, it's not my attire. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Yes, it yeah. certainly yeah. isn't. Yeah. 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 So there's actually one. Um, uh, piece that I wanted to pay attention to, which is maybe the particularities of Europe uh, and the, uh, uh, you know, we can trap people into patriotism here, but then within the European global, if you you can't be, you can be European, but you can't be European patriot. So there, there's a, but 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 also the idea of um, being more from one place more than one place we're you know we've had the hyphen in america i don't know when we've sort of confirmed it into our uh lexicon or uh, language of identity but there's one essay um um where uh, the author who's american actually is talking about um uh her neighborhood and uh and she has a, a I think Dutch or Belgian. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, no, it's from Molenbeek. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 And from she's, um, there are, she's part of gentrifying the neighborhood. Right. Is exactly. that this one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, and but then she talks to him and she says, oh, "Well, you know, these these um, these people are Moroccan and Belgian. One of them, uh, one of the the kids begins to one of the the people, uh, the Moroccan. I think he's, he's actually one of the accused of a terrorist attack or whatever. Mm-hmm. That he begins to speak with an Antwerp accent, and the, the, the her boyfriend says, "Well, you know, he sounded just like my father." So it's disorienting. So in a, in a way, from the American girlfriend is telling him, "Well, you know, they're Moroccan and they're uh, they're Belgian," and he sort of like he finds that kind of difficult to. Um, to get around, uh, to sort of wrap his head around. I mean, I think in some ways we are much more uh, uh, sort of accustomed to uh, to that idea of being from more than one place. Uh, they're not. But if you think of the, the, the you know, our... Um, you know, where, but where is the the segmentation? Where is the where is the the breakdown? Uh, where is the uh, uh, okay? You you have to be Moroccan and Belgian. The two cannot be combined. But there are the, the social policies and so on. There are uh, the the atmosphere. At least at some point, was was um, more accommodating in some ways than. Our, I mean, we've we've sold the idea that you can hyphenate yourself and be as good as an American as anybody else, but in fact you're not. There, uh, it seems like they, the idea of being both is not, is not uh, uh, something that they've learned to f- uh, live with. But uh, th- th- there was less hostility in some ways than we're we've had in some ways. Like in the so, community life, it seemed on the surface and in. 
Um, definitely in Paris, too. Are these different? Well, maybe not for... As soon as I say something, uh, yeah. I'm like, well, not for the Algerians. Like, like there's no, definitely... But, but I think what I'm trying to get is that, like, there is... I mean, every country has its... Lives its racism in different ways. But, but uh, there, oh. there's something progressive about what's happening there as opposed to what, what we're doing here. Yet, there also have not this accepted this idea of being for, from both places. Uh, they haven't really com- figured the idea of a European and somewhere else. So there is, uh, this is where the, the project is, is, is worth preserving because it's new. It, is, uh, it doesn't have like 300 centuries of assimilation mm-hmm. that we have, but it has, but the, but the overall project has a kind of a progressive approach. While here we've had this project, but we've managed it with generally regressive policies. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I think, I, and it really comes down to uh, how um, people respond to difference. Uh, the traditional American ethos when it comes to uh, difference, we are a nation of immigrants, uh, is to uh, tend toward assimilation, mm-hmm. to ally to the difference or to pretend it's not there, mm-hmm. just as we often pretend that the racism is not there when it's, in fact, mm-hmm. baked into the very systems mm-hmm. uh, uh, of social organization that we've adopted here. Whereas in much of Europe, uh, the emphasis remains on difference very often. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a solution either no. because it does mean uh, uh, generational marginalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it means that uh, people are not brought into uh, economies or uh, cultural activities at um, as, as full stakeholders mm-hmm. uh, in, in many of the communities around Europe, not just in cities, but in, on the countryside as well. And... Uh, what we what we are encountering, I think, is a kind of potentially a meeting where we can see that the American uh, tradition of assimilation, which has been breaking down in mm-hmm. in, in in recent decades, um, maybe needs to break down more. And then, what in order to achieve true multiculturalism, it doesn't mean eliminating the differences; it means using the differences. Mm-hmm. Yes. I don't need. I almost said celebrating, but I don't need to say celebrating. Use the differences. Generate new life out of them. Uh, and I think that Europe is approaching, potentially approaching that mm-hmm. just from the other side mm-hmm. where they were very much, uh, uh, and this is pretty much across the continent, invested in designating that you are from here, this is your language, this is your race, this mm-hmm. is your ethnicity. Um, in uh, the Soviet Union, your, your ethnicity was actually stamped in your passport. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a nominally multicultural society, mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, and that and that sort of that does uh, carry through generationally into Europe, but at the same time they fully acknowledge that uh, they that this is an issue mm-hmm. when when uh, policymakers talk about the situation of segregation mm-hmm. in a in a uh, an area like Molenbeek mm-hmm. um, or in the banlieue outside of Paris, mm-hmm. they talk about it as an issue that needs to be resolved, not as something that simply, well, we can just leave it like that. It was good for my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. It was good for their parents' generation. We'll just leave it as it is. What does Europe want now? Right. Um, this this issue, fall 2019 of Michigan Quarterly Review. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll take a short break. Today on the program, Benjamin Paloff is here. Khaled Matawa, Jeremiah Chamberlain. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program Michigan Quarterly Review. We're launching the fall 2019 issue. What does Europe want now? Um, today in the studio, Benjamin Paloff is here, Khaled Matawa, Jeremiah Chamberlain, um, and I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about uh, MQR, uh, Michigan Quarterly Review, and its life, its online presence, mm-hmm. because we're we're here definitely super excited about the print edition, this issue coming out into the world. Um, but MQR has a solid online presence now. What is what can folks expect to find when they come to the site and how is it working um, with the print editions that you're yeah. going to continue to produce? Well, uh, for the, the, uh, the print edition, uh, immediately you can get it at uh, 
literary. They sell it there. You could go to the launch tomorrow. Oh, and tomorrow night. the launch is at seven o'clock, so we, we can even get some of the authors to to sign the issue. Uh, and at um, Nicholas Books, they also sell uh, sell MQR. So for those of you who are interested, we also uh, you, you can contact us and order a copy. Or if you don't want a print copy, we we can sell you a PDF copy or a PDF subscription. Actually, many of the European contributors wanted to have a PDF subscription because you know the mailing is so expensive, and they got two-year subscriptions instead of one year. So, so in a sense, having it in these various formats. But in addition to uh, what um, people get as a print copy of the journal, we have material that we publish on our website, uh, uh, which is online only. Uh, so there is a one essay now, uh, uh, a report from uh, Lesbos, which is uh, 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 an island in Greece, very close to Turkey, where many uh, migrants have crossed the the Bay of Izmir, I believe, to come to uh, to Greece. And it's become a, a center for migrants, but also a troubled uh, center because they have uh, uh, camps, refugee camps, and they're overcrowded. And so that's been the the uh, the, the sort of the cauldron of, uh, of tension in some ways. Uh, and there are other essays uh, I coming. I noticed Natalie mm. Bacopoulos mm. has an essay on mm. Elena Ferrante from yeah. the, twi- I think, mm. from uh, originally yeah. out in 2016. Yeah. But so so that w- Th- that one is on the... That's the, also the, something the, we, the we would do, which is to uh, reprint or uh, republish pieces from the archives that are Connecting related. to the theme. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, things from the issue. We tend to... Um, Poems are much easier to publish because they're shorter. And so some of the print issue is on, will be available online or is online. And then there is uh, complementary materials that are online only that people can read. Uh, all of it is that we, we ha- you know, our print uh, version of the magazine is the, is the heavy. Uh, but, the, the, you know, you can sort of be part of the conversation that we're trying to raise uh, by following us online. And before this issue, as we were talking, special, we, I mean, we have regular issues and special issues. The, the previous special issue was on Iran, and the one before was on caregiving, and, and then the regular issues are also fine, of, uh, full of excellent writing as well. Because oh, so, I was wondering mm-hmm. if they were the, the issues to come were all going to be themed, if I had got it wrong earlier. With the, no, but, no, okay, no, no. So, we, so it's every other issue so we've published four times a year. The plan has been for the last two years is that every other issue is a, a special themed issue. So two special th- issues, two regular issues. And when you're deciding that the themes, mm. um, the special issues, are you coming up sort of with a with an idea mm. in in house in MQR, and then looking for because you mentioned mm. you thought of Ben right away mm-hmm. when you thought of this idea yeah. uh, about the the European idea. Um, is that how it works, where you'll think of a theme, or is, is it sometimes driven by mm-hmm. the person that you're imagining to be the guest editor for the issue? Uh, it's both. I mean, I, 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 m- most of these ideas were ideas that I came up with that I thought we would, should explore. Uh, but also, if you if you think of an idea and you don't find uh, can't find a guest editor or doesn't occur to you to think of one, then then it doesn't fly because it's very important. Which brings us to the next special issue that we're working on is on water. And uh, journalist uh, and author Anna Clark, who's a, 
wrote the, the wonderful book on Flint will be our yeah, uh, and it will be an issue on water globally. And friend, so, friend of the show, Amanda uh, yes. Uli spoke with. Yeah, no, so so it's it's uh, find the theme and the person who the expert who will. Uh, help uh, you know open it up for you and locate other authors and create generate excitement uh, about it. So. so, so is that so? That's what happened, Ben. When you took mm. this issue, did you think now I'm going to I'll contact Jeremy because I know that mm. he will have pro- potentially a piece about Bulgaria. Um, <laughs> or I, I, <laughs> since um, that's your wheelhouse. Y- yes and no. I um, in so far as I I certainly I didn't know what was going to come in. But for me, um, and I've I've done editorial work in the past in a number of different settings, uh, most durably for about seven years as a poetry and, and criticism editor at, at Boston Review, um, where what was the pleasure of that work for me was entirely in discovering things that I had not anticipated. If not for that, I would not do this. Um, so I wanted to, I, I immediately had a kind of short list of potential contributors, but I was very, very conservative in soliciting anything for this issue. I really wanted to see what would come in. And also much, uh, I hope not too, too much to the annoyance of um, uh, Hannah and the rest of the office staff. We have wonderful readers who who uh, do editing of different portions of this journal. Um, uh, as well as interns who screen some of the submissions as well, uh, I I insisted for my myself that I would read every submission. So I read every submission, um, uh, and in fact did pull a couple of items that had been screened out. I pulled them back in, and they're they're in the issue. Do you realize uh, how much hope you're giving everyone right at this moment? Writers everywhere I, I, are. <laughs> Are going to look for your next guest yeah. editing gig, Benjamin Payloff. Yes. That was that's right, everyone. That was Ben Payloff. That's right. Yeah, I, I I will read every submission. I really will. Um, but uh, uh, and I can't always say yes to the things I want, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, what uh, I did end up doing um, fairly early on is soliciting material not from authors but from translators. So I, um, you know, I, I work a lot in literary translation, both as a as a translator and also as a theorist of translation. And uh, we form our own quite peculiar international mafia mm-hmm. and simply sending out one email to a, a, a fairly short list of translator friends working in multiple uh, uh, languages. Uh, I, I said, well, this is what I want. Mm-hmm. Can't be celebration. Must be reflection, must be engagement. Uh, do you have anything that comes to mind? And many of them said, you know, not 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 that I'm working on now. And um, uh, but quite a few of them came forward and said, you know what, there, I have this one thing that I didn't know what to do with, and this is the, the moment for it. And Jeremy, what was it like for you? Like, how did you when you with your piece? How would I come to it? Well, uh, maybe I can piggyback on something that Ben just said, if you don't mind, and I can sure. come over to it. Yeah, because I just want to sort of lean on this idea about the importance of, of translation. That's what brought me to Bulgaria in the first place, actually, um, was working with the Elizabeth Kostova Foundation. And Elizabeth was a graduate of the University of Michigan's MFA program, now the Helen Zell Writers Program. Um, and when her first novel, The Historian, 
reached international acclaim. She pledged an enormous portion of her uh, foreign royalties to start a foundation to support Bulgarian literature um, by creating an intercultural exchange and dialogue between English language speaking, speaking countries and Bulgarians. It's a, Bulgarian uh, is a very small language pool. It doesn't have the diaspora of, say, Greek or Italian or French or German. Um, there aren't a lot of Bulgarian speakers of, in terms of ratio, you know, obviously in Detroit, Chicago. Um, but when you're in a small language pool, it's very difficult to both export literature and import literature. So one of the big, big moves of the foundation was to underwrite and help um, find Bulgarian authors' uh, homes here in the U.S. We partner with um, Open Letter um, Books in Rochester, New York, that Chad Post runs, um, and also a lot of uh, Words Without Borders. Um, we've had a lot of success trying to find uh, Bulgarian uh, points of view uh, outside of, of the of the country. Um, and I think that that's been a hugely important part of that project, but that's how I arrived first was to work with that foundation and sort of fell in love with the rich, rich literary culture of Bulgarian poetry and fiction. And are you, cause, cause you do, I know how important the foundation is mm -hmm. to you, Jeremy, but are you also, do you have a, a role in it currently? Because you said we, like it's very much part yeah. of, of your, your own, your own scholarly work, your own Absolutely. mission yeah. as a writer. I came through first as a fellow, uh, then came back because I was so passionate about uh, the country and the literature, came back as a, a guest, then an editor. And I think I, you know, was constantly asking if I could come back enough that they finally said, well, you should just maybe just join the board of directors and actually do some, do some formal work. So it's been great to sort of help bring uh, not only the translation project, but we also host a international literary conference on the Black Sea every summer called the Sizzle Fiction Seminars. And we've brought writers from around the world to meet their Bulgarian peers and to exchange work, ideas about literature, ideas about um, what it means to to toil in this um, project, um, to go back to that, that word. And I think that getting an understanding of how literature conceives of of a place, of a country, of a nation, of uh, of something larger like Europe is sort of one of the most important ways uh, to do that. Let's take a short break. When we come back, Jeremy, would you mind reading? Sure. So we Thank can you. hear part of the piece. Today, Michigan Quarterly Review is here. Benjamin Payloff, Khaled Matawa, Jeremiah Chamberlain. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. Ich seh dein Form, 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, we've got the launch of the fall 2019 issue of Michigan Quarterly Review happening. And tomorrow night, you can head to Literati, 7 p.m., to see people in person, buy your copy, see the print edition. It's beautiful. Um, so today in studio, studio Benjamin Payloff, the guest editor, Khaled Matawa, editor, Jeremiah Chamberlain, contributor. Um, what does Europe want now? And Jeremy, what's the what's the title of your piece? And could you read some? For sure. Us? Um, it's called "A Thing Not Witnessed." It's a essay that tries to wrestle with both uh, the role that we play as writers uh, when we're engaging in stories that aren't our own, uh, and how that sits under the umbrella of creative nonfiction, but sort of takes a linguistic turn into that. So I'll read maybe just the opening little beat here, and then. I'll be looking at presenting more of it at the event tomorrow. Uh, a thing not witnessed. And it starts in an epigraph by Michelle Morano from Grammar Lessons, her marvelous book. And Morano writes, Remember that the subjunctive is a mood, not a tense. Verb tenses tell when something happens. Moods tell how true. In the 1970s and 1980s in Bulgaria, there was a profound gap between the reality everyday citizens lived and the messaging about their collective existence that came to them via the language of the party. One year around New Year's, a Bulgarian friend of mine was waiting in line for oranges. The holiday season was one of the few times of the year that oranges were available, and each family was allotted a certain amount. You might wait in line for hours, often outdoors in the cold of December, to claim your share, and of course there was no guarantee there would be enough to go around. On this particular day, with everyone from the neighborhood diligently waiting, a party member came up alongside my friend, a teenager at the time, and clapped him on the back, stating grandly, Comrade, how lucky we are to have so much when the capitalists have so little. My friend is baffled, naturally, but he knew that his only response was to agree, saying, Yes, comrade, how lucky we are to have so much. Then the party man strode away, and they all continued to wait. When my friend recounted this story, he did so with humor, using it to illustrate the often absurd reality of living under the regime. Though recently this anecdote has had me thinking less about the content of the tale and more about its telling, not in terms of narrative, but in terms of grammar, specifically in terms of mood. Most European languages have four moods, the indicative, to state or explain, the imperative, to command or request, the subjunctive, to express a wish, hope, or doubt, and the conditional, to establish an if-then relationship. But in Bulgarian there's a fifth mood, which is used to describe unwitnessed events, to linguists, it's known as the re-narrative, a story retold. Colloquially, it's also referred to as the fairy tale mood, because it's often used to tell stories to children, particularly when recounting myths and fables. I'm told by Bulgarian friends that its register evokes the same sort of sing-song quality as Once Upon a Time. Beyond fairy tales, the re-narrative is employed daily in a much more pragmatic way, simply to recount a story or event that you weren't present to witness. Translating a phrase in this mood into English, you would have to add modifiers such as allegedly, reportedly, or it's thought that, to convey what is truly being expressed. Yet in Bulgarian, the relationship of the speaker to what took place is literally built into the grammar of the language, implying, of course, that a thing not witnessed must be recognized as such and categorized differently, regardless of how confident the speaker feels about the events or happenings, how true they may be. Likewise, the listener on the other side of this linguistic contract understands that the information being conveyed comes with this caveat, 
affecting how they, in turn, will interpret what's being said. Bulgarian is the only Slavic language, along with the closely related Macedonian language, to have the renarrative mood, and many linguists consider this to be a spillover from Turkish, which has a similar grammatical feature. Allegedly, we may say, because linguistic history can never be witnessed directly, only renarrated. Thanks, Jeremiah Chamberlain. A little um, start. And that's, yeah, and so yeah. you, and folks can go to Literati yeah. to, to, to hear more tomorrow or pick up a copy of yeah. Michigan Quarterly Review, order online on the MQR website. Um, we need the uh, uh, re-narrative uh, mode to talk about what we, uh, what we hear on the internet. Yes. Because we need that. Like, allegedly, I heard on the internet yeah. that this was this, uh, so that, you know, <laughs> that what I'm saying is Wouldn't not that true. Wouldn't that change things? Uh, yeah. We were talking also about, uh, a moment ago about generation differences uh, both in Europe and the United States and uh, one of the, the the big differences really is uh, is precisely in uh, the sophistication with which people approach information mm-hmm. if you grow up digitally native even my own children Brian and Zeke are they're still quite young but they see things on the internet and they intuitively know what is relatively reliable, relatively unreliable, what requires verification, they ask questions. Um, Whereas my my father's generation, uh, they hear or see something and they believe it to be true implicitly. And uh, and that's part of the issue because it's certainly something that our political elites have been exploiting. Yeah, the authority of the image uh, instead of the text. So like the image is... So powerful, but maybe for the younger generation, they don't. You know, younger people make stuff up digitally, video. Like sure. my daughter is always making videos. Sure. So clearly, she must think that this is just is like rubbish anyway. So, <laughs> well, they they at least they understand it. it Shout it's, out to it's, not, it's made up. It's they, all made up. It's a made thing, yeah, yeah. exactly. And they 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 are involved in that process, yeah. and that that uh, that's not a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? They 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 are able to mm-hmm. navigate information in a way that is responsible. Mm. And and maybe that's one of the issues that we have when we're talking about mm. uh, politics and society, both in Europe and the United States, is mm. that we don't really use information um, responsibly. We consume it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Chair. Well, and you think also back, I mean, this Bulgaria piece you know, was triggered in part because, you know, thinking about that story, my, my friend had told me about the way in which the constructed nature of, of language creates a reality one is living within. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to spend those years behind the Iron Curtain when the party was propagandizing with posters and radio shows, you know, you're walking around in one reality in your daily life and then you have another message to you linguistically by, you know, the regime. Uh, I think there's no coincidence that, you know, Bulgarian literature is so full of doubles and doppelgangers and uh, you have people who live one life in private and you've got another in public and never the twain shall meet in certain ways, you know. Mm Going back to the the title of the issue, uh, what what does Europe want now? Um, so that's no accident to framing like asking it as a question, mm-hmm. and so that was I think key to your organizational principle of shaping it and how you chose. Yes, yes, very much so. And so, could you talk? We don't have too long. We've got right. a couple minutes left, Ben. Um, <laughs> could, could you speak to that? And then perhaps do you want to take us out on? Uh, Sure. The piece that we were talking off air uh, a little bit a while ago, and just so everyone can can hear it. Yeah. uh, So to to speak to the 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 question of it, it is a question. Um, I um, 
I do not subscribe to the fantasy that uh, liberal progressive democracy or an open society uh, or um, uh, positive cohabitation, I don't, I don't subscribe to the fantasy that those are givens. Uh, one either makes them or does not. Or the middle class, for example. Exactly. All of this is a, is a matter of choices and decisions and labor, um, uh, maintenance. It's it's not going to it's not something we just get to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, the question of the of the title of uh, uh, for this issue is very much a confrontation. What do you want? Because once you determine what you want, then we can have a conversation about how to get it, what it will cost, um, what it demands of us, when it's over. The hint being that it's never over. Right. You're ne- you never get to sit back and rest. Uh, but if you are not willing to ask that question, then you are resigning yourself to just take what comes, which means essentially leaving it to everybody else to decide. So, so whose voice is it is at the the end piece so of this, this issue? The last, um, this the the piece. I, in addition to micromanaging uh, the selection of of the material, I was also um, uh, micromanaging the order of the pieces. And uh, the last piece is by Georgi Markov, um, who uh, was a Bulgarian intellectual who was murdered by uh, state security. Uh, in London in um, the 1970s. Uh, And this is a piece that was translated by Dmitry Kenarov. Markov wrote it in 1973 as as, uh, the United Kingdom was joining um, uh, the predecessor of the um, European Union. And I'll just read one um, paragraph from this. It is wonderful says Markov, that history has created on our little planet so many and varied nations, each one unique. It is wonderful that so many languages are spoken, each one like a lovely song. It is wonderful that each part of the world boasts its own natural beauties. This whole diversity forms a rich and colorful bouquet. The horrors of patriotism start with setting one side against another, one people against another. Worse still, for every patriotic action, there is an equal and opposite patriotic reaction. All major conflicts are between patriots. I think everyone would agree that neither material advantages nor historical contributions give the right of any one nation to consider itself superior to another. The arbitrary generalizations of national characteristics we are accustomed to as a strange game of knowledge are more or less false, and everyone who has done his share of traveling has encountered kind and generous individuals in each country, as well as rude and discourteous ones, inevitably patriots. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, let's say that's... That's a that's a wrap. That's what Europe wants. <laughs> that's, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and tomorrow, Literati, yes, seven, 7 p.m. Um, Michigan Quarterly Review, the launch, print copies, um, and come see folks in person um, today on the program. Thank you all so thank much you. for being here. Um, thank you very e- much. Each of yeah, you, you. Um, uh, Benjamin Payloff, guest editor, Khaled Matawa, editor, Jeremiah Chamberlain, who we got to hear part of his contribution um, to the issue. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Everyone, Thanks to Gina for engineering, making us sound good. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
and two now on LeClaire. As the command coming and going for Leah Schiff, trying to get that off-speed pitch. And it's just rising ever so slightly out of the zone. Still down there at first is Hannah Carson. Nobody out in the inning. It's the first, first full count of the night? I believe for Michigan State is pitching. That one gets away as there's a swing and a miss. Or they say, did she make contact? Maybe she left the batter's box too early? I don't know what the call was there. As there was a swing and a miss and the ball got away from the catcher and then the umpire immediately called out before the throw was even made down to first base, so. But Carson advance. Carson moves up to second on the wild pitch. Interesting. Hoganrod now stands in. Haley reached on an error her first time up. Well, that was last inning, came around to score on an error. Hoganrod takes that one down. Yeah, Arizonan is the demonym for Arizona. There are some very odd demonyms on this page. 1-0. That one also inside 2-0. What do they call someone from Idaho? Idahoan. But then they have these other ones that are unofficial alternatives. <laughs> Idaho has fortune seekers. What? <laughs> What's it even mean? If you go to Idaho, you're going to look like a potato or something, right? <laughs> Kansas, sunflower, jayhawker, grasshopper. Dude, how about Kansas going bold the other night? <laughs> that, that basketball.